Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Early Modern History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mike Martoccio, and I'm coming to you from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I'm here with Nicholas Scott Baker. Nick is an associate professor of Early Modern European and Mediterranean History at Macquarie University in beautiful, warm Sydney, Australia. And he's also the author of a fabulous new book I had the opportunity to read called In Fortune's Theater, Financial Risk and the Future in Renaissance Italy, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. This innovative cultural history of financial risk-taking in Renaissance Italy argues that a new concept of the future as unknown and unknowable emerged in Italian society between the mid-15th and mid-16th centuries, exploring the rich interchanges between mercantile and intellectual cultures underpinning this development in four major cities, Florence, Genoa, Venice, and Milan. Baker examines how merchants and gamblers, the futurologists of the pre-modern world, understood and experienced their own risk-taking and that of others. Drawing on extensive archival research, this study demonstrates that while the Renaissance did not create the modern sense of time, it constructed the foundations on which it could develop. The new concepts of the past and the future that developed in the Renaissance provided the pattern for the later construction of a single narrative beginning in classical antiquity stretching to the now. This book thus makes an important contribution toward laying bare the historical contingency of a sense of time that continues to structure our world in profound ways. Thank you, Nick. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm well, Marty. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation to, to join. It's a pleasure to, to be here uh, to talk about the book. Yeah, so uh, obviously, uh, you know, I love the book. Everyone should uh, go out and buy it uh, immediately right now. It makes for a great uh, Christmas or, or uh, end-of-year gift. But um, maybe to get us started, tell us about the origins of this book. What, uh, what spurred your interest in the history of the future? Right, Where We study the past, but you're interested in the history of the future. So tell us about the, uh, what spurred this. Uh, yeah, look, it, it took a, um, it actually, it, it took a while for me to put it all together. Um, I was, uh, I was in the, the U S in, in 2007, um, finishing, finishing grad school. And, and then, uh, and then I was in 
visiting assistant professor position. Uh, so I said, you know, I, I sort of got to witness firsthand the the evolving subprime mortgage crisis and uh, and you know everything that that followed on from that uh, in in the middle of, of twenty oh eight. And so, and and I sort of I remember sort of watching all of that with a kind of a a, a fascinated horror at how it had all uh, occurred, how how sort of risk systems had got so out of uh, so out of balance. So I, you know, I mean it, that, and that sort of formed formed a background. And then, I mean, to be honest, I you know I was I was sort of interested, you know, I mean that was kind of I, I was fascinated with how you know the the Great Recession or the, the the GFC or whatever whatever we want to call it uh, was um, affecting my life, how it was affecting everybody's lives. But that 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 sort of was was in the background, and I was sort of stumbling around trying to find find a new topic. You know, yeah, right, right. Well, my dissertation and and uh, and was was sort of progressing through the book on that, and I was I was just sort of reading um, reading stuff. Uh, randomly in the archive to a certain extent, um, and of course, Martin, this is where you enter the story. Oh, I didn't even realize. I hadn't even expected this. This is great. <laughs> and uh, so I was, yeah, I was, um, I was just reading. I was reading letters uh, in the, the archive in the state archive in Florence one day. Letters from a, an agent of the, the uh, Medici Duke of Florence, who was at the vice. Um, Vice Regal Court in Naples, uh, and in one particular letter, this agent devoted a great deal of length to talking about the gambling that was happening in the court, uh, and um, you know who was winning, who was losing, how much, you know what, you know, and and you know all the sort of details. Uh, and it was uh, it was that moment, one of those moments in the archive where it was just like I thought I don't understand what's going on. It's like I don't I don't understand why. He's talking so much uh, about gambling, and, and you know that this is then you maybe you remember Marty. I, we actually spoke, but we went for a drink, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> and, and had a, and I remember talking to you about this. Um, so I initially thought I was going to, you know, I was going to be writing uh, the history of gambling in Renaissance Italy, um, but then I realised, uh, believe it or not, gambling is actually less interesting. Um, seems I think because of the, the nature of the archival sources. Um, but I just sort of gradually realized there was a bigger question. Um, and that question was about how Italians thought about, uh, the future, uh, and how they thought about risk. And this sort of develops out of how, you know, it, Renaissance Italy, a little late medieval in Renaissance Italy, um, has a, you know, has a, a significant place in, in traditional uh, Eurocentric histories of capitalism. You know, it's one of the, the sort of the key locations in which modern European capitalism is is understood to have developed, and and so how modern attitudes towards financial risk uh, developed. So I, I sort of started putting that together, and that's it. It, it. it was a it was a very gradual evolution. I got um, probably. Two or three years before I sort of had a coherent sense of of, of what I was doing. <laughs> so there's a lesson there for you know for I think for for people you know other scholars perhaps you know don't worry if it takes you a long time to work out what you're trying to do. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I well, I, I feel like I, uh, you know, being there, it's such an inspiration for the book. I feel like I should be getting royalties from it. I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I mean, it's it is uh, like I said, it's a wonderful book, and I, I think you know most people who who would listen to this interview probably have a sense of the Italian Renaissance being related to new ways, not so much about thinking about the future, right, but that. The Renaissance is all about thinking about the past, right? That the, the past is somehow, that the Greco-Roman past is somehow newly important in the Renaissance. Um, so I, I guess a question I have is, just before we kind of get into the meat of the book, how did have people, scholars in the past, thought about what, how people in the Renaissance thought about the future, right? Kind of how scholars approached this this question, this problem that you're that you ask. How how do people in the Renaissance, how do Renaissance Italians think about the future? How have scholars approached that before? And so then what's kind of novel about this book? Uh, yeah. And so I think, uh, I mean, what's, I think what is, what is, what the contribution that the book makes is, uh, that my book makes is uh, that it's the, like the, the first systematic and, and coherent examination of our Italians thought about the future um, in the period of the Renaissance, in, in the period that, that we that we call the Renaissance. Um, it certainly there are there are scholars who have um, have looked at this uh, question before and, and in particular um, art historians. There's, there, there are several works uh, by art historians who, who consider this. Um, uh, Simona Cohen uh, who's the University of Tel Aviv um, has published a wonderful book about time, about images of time uh, in Italy. And so there's there's a section uh, in that where all she she several talks about. Um, uh, and she doesn't exactly talk about the future, but she she's talking about in the books that are uh, uh, generative of ideas about the future. Um, and Jason Kelly, um, who wrote a, a great dissertation on uh, prediction and um, and the future in northern European art that that hasn't been that hasn't been published yeah I mean she's published biographies but she hasn't published the dissertation uh, as a whole um, and of course sitting sitting behind all of that um, there are you know sort of the, the big sort of you know conceptual historians of time like Reinhard Kasselik um, who who sort of who does you know his his idea of um, the future is that you know there there isn't really a sense of of um, the unknown future in in Europe until um, until uh, the sort of modernity until the the eighteenth century. Uh, he does you know he talks a little about about Renaissance Italy, but he like, it's sort of this transitional period, but it's still largely part of this. Um, what he argues with this sort of static medieval concept of of temporality. Um, so there's there's some work by some by some scholars, but but most of that work is is really on it. Um, most of the work that really engages with the idea of the future is uh, work by art historians. They're, they're, I mean, and there is a, there's a lot of work, of course, on on financial risk taking. Uh, by economic historians um, of all sorts of stripes, 
Um, but no, no one study had sort of tried to um, to put the story, put the narrative together as as a whole, and 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 uh, try to understand sort of holistically how ideas about the future had had developed not only in cultural aspects like art, but also in in the lived experience of of commerce and of gambling just of, of every the sort of probabilistic assessments of, of everyday life that you know we, we all make sort of probabilistic assessments um, all the time every day and so yeah you know, I was trying to sort of capture that level but also uh, put it together with um with the sort of the, the, the cultural level of art and the culture as well yeah I mean I, I think you you kind of hit because the 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 book really is divided between you have the kind of everydayness of this, right? And then you also look at, at high art and uh, seemingly every thinker who anyone has ever heard of in the Renaissance is talking about this. Um, so it really, I mean, it just, the the amount of sources that you look at is amazing. It's really good. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you you start the book and just to, just to kind of get into it a bit, you, you start the book, I think, in a really clever way. You look at two groups of people who... Um, who basically are making a living in the middle of the 16th century out of their knowledge of this kind of new knowledge that they have about the uncertain future, which are um, gamblers and merchants. So let's maybe take a minute and kind of start with with those two groups. Uh, actually, let's start with the first group specifically, uh, gamblers. Can you tell uh, listeners just how prevalent was gambling uh, in the Renaissance? It seems like it's happening all the times. And what sort of games are people playing? And what it, there's more to gambling than just the money on the table, you argue. So maybe get into that a bit. Um, yeah. So yeah. So yeah. So yeah. It, it does. It does feel like gambling is uh, is everywhere. Gambling uh, seems to be sort of ubiquitous uh, and and endemic. Uh, in, I mean, they're gambling on the then the gender of children. I mean, this is like gender reveal parties up to a yeah, different level, yeah. right? I mean, it's really yeah. you know, gambling on everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They pretty much you, know, you sort of get the sense that that um, Italians in the, the 15th and 16th century would, would bet on just about anything, as you said. Yeah, like the, the sex of of, the, of an unborn child, oh, the the death of a prince, which of course is a really dangerous, potentially dangerous thing to mm. to gamble from. <laughs> Yeah, the identity of the next cult that was like a huge. There's an industrial complex about the bend on on who the, the next pope would be, uh, and and everybody uh, everybody gambles. Men gamble, women gamble. Um, relatively poor people gamble. Wealthy people gamble, uh, and and so it's it's not just that it's um, pervasive, but it it. it Crosses gender uh, lines. It crosses. It crosses across uh, social starting When we come across, about, yeah, yeah. In the in the arts, you come across poor widows who are being fleeced. You know, a mm-hmm. uh, you you come across. You come across women who are fascinatingly Ven- Venice and plus specific several women who seem to be sort of entrepreneurs of gambling, who are sort of running gambling gambling schools. Uh, not teaching gambling, but in you know, places for for people to to go and gamble, 
Uh, and then, you know, as I, you know, the, the sort of the starting point of all of this, the, the, the gambling side of the vast legal court in, in Naples, you have um, princes and, and members of the nobility uh, gambling extraordinary sums, like lifetime is of worth of work for, for ordinary uh, for ordinary people. Um, so, so I mean, so there's betting going along, like people people bet on on all sorts of things. Um, they also do uh, do play games on, until the 15th century. The most common game is, is a dice game, uh, in which in Italian is called Zara, which is is played the three dice, and you, you basically you you um you're betting on the the likelihood of a number being rolled. So of course that means that the really low and really high numbers, three, four, seventeen, and eighteen, uh, which you know you can only there's only one possible role to roll those numbers. That means they're much higher state. It's the it's the numbers in the middle which are a, which are a safer bet. Um, and because it's uh, sort of it's slightly tangent, I guess, but because this game is so prevalent, this is the sort of game that you see. Uh, when you see images of the crucifixion and the soldiers gamble, as you do, uh, you mentioned this, yeah, 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 that's that's what they're that's what they're that's what they're playing. Yeah, Dante mentions it uh, because it's so common. Um, it, you get this there. There's a ready made body of data for for early sort of mathematical forays into uh, you know the early forays into mathematical probability uh, by people like Girolamo Cardano and and Galileo. Uh, yeah, that's that's what they base their their initial thinking on because that they've sort of got this body of data because people play the third game. Um, from the fifteenth century, then fine cards start to appear in Italy. Um, they, they the history is a little obscure, but it seems fairly certain they're introduced um, by the Mediterranean from from somewhere in the Islamic world. Um, that uh, this is where fine cards then come into into Europe. Uh, and so then we start to get proto forms of games like that we still play today, like Pope and Black White. Now they various form the bees, uh, and this is sort of much a much more genteel and sociable form of gambling. You know, dice fans can be piled anywhere on the street. Here's piled games with a little more complex. Um, they also <clears throat> they also bet on table games like chess and backgammon. Really, um, so. Uh, Cardano is just like this inveterate. He's a physician and he's a bit of a polymath, but he's also a, a compulsive gambler. He did one stage you cover the story about how he sort of made a living betting on games of chess for that one stage uh, in his life. Uh, and yeah, as you as you said in your question, it's not um it's it's not just about money. There are all sorts of um stakes of sort of uh, face and honor and and yes, yes, involved. That was what was so interesting in uh, in the book is it's it's not about the money, but there's so much more about this. Yeah, and I mean, I do think it it sort of it depends. It, it does sort of depend on on who you on who you are. I mean, I think at a certain level, yeah, it's um, it's it's so it is about sort of honor and face and 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 social status at every level. And of course, but the core people gambling, um, there's, you know, the financial loss, the financial stakes are higher. Um, so, you know, for them, it, I think it is a little more about the money. Um, and, uh, but yeah, for, you know, people, once we start leading up the social started, then it really, 
it, it's not about the money at all. It's about well, constructing an appropriate self-control persona as, um, as someone who is indifferent to financial loss and, and doesn't care if they lose. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I, you know, in, in that, I think it's in that chapter where you're talking about different types of, uh, th- these different types of games that people are playing that I, I have to say one of the, the most fascinating sources, one of the most fun sources that you've looked at, uh, which was this, this really funny sounding, um, text by the satirist Pietro Arantino, called Le, uh, Le Carte Palanti, the talking cards, uh, from 1543, uh, Tell us just, you know, just in a, a, a minute or two, just about that source, because it looked, it just looked like it was so much fun to read and find and, and talk about, because it's, right, it's about talking, it's about playing cards that are giving, that are kind of mi- making an argument. Well, you, you describe it, look, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you, you know it better than I do, so. Yeah, yeah, look, yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was really fun to, to leave out and, and to work with. Yeah, so yeah, it's this text called uh, Le Carte Palati, the, the the talking cards, and and so the conceit of the text is that Ben's it features a um, it's a dialogue, uh, and it's so it's a dialogue between an, an actual historical person, um, a, a, a known a, a sort of well known card maker, um, who in the text is Francesco Padovano. Uh, so it's a dialogue between him and and a set of cards that suddenly sort of becomes sentient and, and animates and, and has a conversation. <laughs> I'm like, well, they talk about the history of cards and they talk about and they talk about um, you know whether whether gambling was bad and then, you know and that and and it sort of then sweeps through all these you know they talk about you know the the, the Pope and they talk about all these Italian princes and rulers and their attitude and how they are. I'm gambling. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. And the real challenge, I think, with using that was was not getting too carried away. I think you you feel like you could just write so much on that. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier drafts, I had, I had, you know, would sort of lard it with all these references, and it did on fuck. I've got to pull pull some of this out. I think one of the things that I lost was was actually was my favourite story that he tells is about a man who's who's gambling and having lost all his money. Uh, he stakes a tooth on his next bet, and and the the guy he's playing with, you know, takes accepts the bet, uh, and so the, the the first guy loses the tooth, and the winner insists on collecting it. So so they go off to the bar to search it, and uh, and um, but the winner the winner's just like, why why I want my tooth, and so the the loser is like, oh well, actually this tooth's rotten. Been pulled this one out. <laughs> so the bar the surgeon that. So the moral, you know, the moral, of course, is that, that the winner has lost all sense of perspective, and he's just driven by avarice, and he can't. He's just like, oh, I've got to have the tooth. I want the tooth. I want the tooth. And so the real winner, you know, the winner is he's the loser, yeah, because he gets the tooth for free. Um, yeah, because of course the barber's like, well, I'm not pulling it out unless you pay me. So the, the winner pays him to pull out. The- <laughs> Man, what's, what's really fascinating is about like it's it's like it's this this deeply satirical and it has some sort of outrageous stories, but its central attitude toward gambling is is like the same as sort of serious works like Castiglione's Book of the Court. It's you know, what matters is self control and being disinterested in the outcome. Like that that tooth story sort of encapsulates you know. That that's this guy's a bad. He's a bad gambler because he the, the guy who insists on collecting the tooth is a bad gambler because he 
his law school sense of perspective. Uh, so yeah, it was a lot of fun. I just had I just had to control how much I used. Yeah, it's it's uh, it. I mean, it's great. Yeah. Um, the so that the, those are the, that's the first two chapters, right? Are the are on gambling, um, and then you move to that's the sort of the first group of these what you call the experts in in futurity. These these people who are gamblers and merchants. So let's if we could take a couple of minutes and talk about uh, the second group. So so merchants. Um, you know, specifically in chapter four, you kind of dive deeply into uh, a source that I've used and a lot of other people have used, but um, are really, really rich, which are uh, merchant correspondence. Uh, so I wonder if you can kind of take us through the different types of terms that, that merchants would use to describe the future. So there, there are you know, there's fortuna, there's kind of fortune, but then there's ventura, occasione, all these different rischio, all these different terms that are related to the future. So maybe kind of parse those, you know, you don't have to parse every one of those because it's, it's a lot. Um, but just the, how that correspondence sort of sounds and, and what it was like to use those kind of sources. Um, yeah, I, I mean, as you, see, as, as you said yourself, yeah, merchant, uh, merchant correspondence is, is kind of, I I just find it fascinating. I mean, some some of it's just dull, but but it's some it's also just just fascinating. Like it's but there's such rich sources, um, and yeah. So I sort of I, I became interested in that that you know merchants had this. Um, I, I realized merchants had this really um, uh, complex vocabulary of, of talking about time. Obviously, merchants are constantly thinking about time in terms of. Uh, Long distance trade, the long distance commerce is is all about you know on um, arbitrage basically you know buy buy something one place low and and hopefully sell it somewhere else at a higher price. But there's there's the, there's always a time factor involved, uh, you know, to ship the goods, particularly in the 16th century. Rodell um, talks about you know the the, the the geography is is the the enemy because it's it's just it takes so long. For, the things to be moral. Um, so yeah, so they have this this, this sort of uh, multiple uh, vocabulary. Um, they they think about fortuna, obviously, and this is this is like the the heart of the book itself is this idea of the way that that fortuna becomes this this figure of the the unknown and unknowable quality of the future. Um, but what interested me in particular is actually that mer- it's not a word that merchants actually use very much. Um, except sometimes to to refer to storms at sea, it has also has this old this old meaning. It being the storm at sea, and you occasionally a new was looping at sense. Um, what the the word that seemed uh, more common in merchant correspondence was was bengura, um, which in in some ways is is uh, sort of a, a synonym bengura, and will appear in Italian dictionaries as being sort of a synonym but for corner. Um, but in mercantile correspondence in the 16th century, it, it, it seems to refer um, to to a speculative, but hopefully it's used in the sense of this is this is a speculative, but but hopefully profitable venture. Right, it's not yes. fortuna because I was I always put the two together in my head, and, and as I was reading a book, I was like, oh, these, these are these are actually different concepts; these are different terms, right? Yeah, yeah, it was certainly certainly within um, within the mercantile, but. Yeah, the way merchants talk about it. Yeah, they they clearly distinguish between the channels. It, it, 
being tutor is something something that's so it's it's risky there's there's a risk to it it's speculative um but because it's got the chance of profit you, you should you should grab a hold of it and and you should do it you know they talk about you know I'm, i'll i'll look for something with, with you know with with more of fruit i'll look i'll look for the you know i'll invest the funds in what what, what promises the best in fruit um they then they, they talk about um Ocasione, um which which has a has a sort of a similar sense of being a, a um a financial opportunity um uh but it's in the way that merchants sort of the way that they sort of pass this the way that they use this you know Ocasione uh seems to refer to something that that's purely uh sort of uh, material and, and contained in the human world. So, so an Ocasione might be really well-priced wool or, or, or coral or some, something like that. Whereas there's a sense, and you see this in the letters, there's a sense that, that, that Ventura, that sort of opportunity of Ventura might be something that's sent by God. There's often this a common phrase is, hopefully God will send Ventura. Um, Whereas God never seems to send a cousin on it. That's, that's <laughs> something that that. That's just something that is there in the world uh, to be to be seeds. Um, so then you know a cousin on and Ventura, like you know, they're sort of a bit positive, potentially profitable, still risky, but speculative density, um, all of the aspects of the fact that the future is unknown, that it's the space of which, uh, this time in which you might be able to make money. Um, and and riskio is risk is is the negative aspect of all that. You know, refers to to the potential sort of unwarranted hazards of, of any commercial venture, um, pirates, um, bad weather, that a market just collapsing before you know before the goods get there. So you know, we, we lose you lose out, or or a market being flooded with you know there's there's too much oil olive oil in the market so you, or you can't sell it for the price that you're hoping for so so you know all of that's that's all of these sort of inherent um risks of any sort of commercial venture while uh, i capture them in this, this, this notion of, of, of risky wall so yeah this this sort of multivalent um vocabulary that that, that by using it in very particular ways to to think about the fact that you know that, that all of their all of their business ventures largely are based on time, whether it's shipping goods or whether it's speculating on currency exchanges or lending money. It's it's all well. There's a time component to all that. So merchants are constantly thinking about the future. Hey, I I, I want to just you you mentioned how a little bit there the role of faith that that I one of the important one of the important things that you do in the book is you argue and i think very very convincingly that it's not as if this new concept of the future replaces the old one it's that they it kind of overlaps with it and it exists at the same time um and you you said there where you were talking that there's still sort of a role for god here in in ventura like god, god grant us ventura so where is faith is all over these correspondence right uh, yeah, 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 very, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, and that's, I think that's one of the things that makes mercantile correspondence uh, so fascinating because on, on the one level, there are these, you know, hard headed, calculating uh, individuals, dude, we, 
it, um, we could easily fool ourselves into thinking, uh, let's sort of have a, a sort of a, a, a you know, a 20th, 21st century modern take on, on the world, but they're, but they're also, you know, they live in a world of faith uh, and, uh, and, and faith is, um, saturates their lives and saturates, saturates, uh, their correspondence, you know, the, the ultimate, um, the, the ultimate and the best investment than any Italian merchant, any Christian Italian merchant can make in this period is, is they're facing God. So that's all, all account books open with an invitation to the divine to, to, you know, to bless whatever the entropy recorded is. Uh, so there's a, yeah, there's this real sense that, okay, we can, we can take out Narifon insurance and that's going to mitigate against some of, some of the risk, but ultimately it's, it's all in God's hands. And I think, to, I mean, for, for, for many of us, I think that there's, that it seems almost contradictory or it seems like they're, they're holding two contradictories in their, two contradictory ideas in their, in their heads at once, but uh, they, they, you know, they're always very comfortable with this. They don't have a problem yet with moving between more than one vision of the future. The future can be uh, unknown and unknowable, but also ultimately determined by by God, right? At the right. same time, um, no, it's so it's that's one of that. I mean, I really, really like that about it. That it, it just allowed for so many different possibilities and so much nuance, which um, which was just such a it's just so refreshing. I really, I really like that. Um. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade Two, play it now with Game Pass. That's that sort of covers you know, gamblers and merchants. Kind of cover the the first half, right? But then the second half, you you kind of and I should say that gamblers and merchants in the middle of the 16th century. So in the second half of the book, you sort of rewind the clock and take us back to how this new notion of the future as unknown time yet to come became established and beginning in the middle of the century before, in the middle of the 15th century. Um, so sort of walk us through that change over time. How did this new idea of the future, this is a big question, but uh, it's really what the second half of the whole book is about. So, you know, feel free to kind of break it up. Um, how did this new idea of the future actually kind of come about? And uh, and it's up to you how much, we can talk about the figure of Fortuna, because um, obviously Fortuna plays this really essential role in that. Um, so... Uh, Right, it, it's a big question, but uh, let's see, let's see how you can. Handle it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank, yeah, and, and actually, here I, I would like to acknowledge uh, one of the one of the anonymous readers for for, for Cambridge, who, uh on the on the sort of the first submission um, said, you know, it's had lots of lovely things to say about it, but also said, you know, you should think about you should think about reversing the order of the book because it, it, it originally was just like a traditional chronological narrative. And, and the reader said, "We should think about reversing the reversing the order." And it, they had a particular suggestion. I didn't quite do what they suggested, but it, I think it, it certainly made 
made for a better book. So I'm very, I'm yeah. very grateful yeah. for that. Really. I mean, it's great because you sort of, you're dropped right in the middle of it, right? You mean, really, these people know what they're doing and they these gamblers and these merchants. And then you get to chapter five and suddenly you're like, oh, okay, here, here we're going to, we're going to wind the clock back. We're going to understand how this world was created, actually, right? Which I th- I, it worked for me, at least. So yeah. uh, you should thank the reviewer. You should thank the reviewer. It was, uh, yeah, it worked. It worked. Um, yeah. So, so how this how this change uh, comes about? So, so yeah, is if we if we take it back, and you know, and I think I think that in chapter five, I'd sort of take it back um, to to like that the, the late the late fourteenth century, and 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 so. You know, black period when you know it's like, well, is it the late Middle Ages or is it the early Renaissance? Yeah, that, that it, without going into that. But so, I, I, what I what I argue is that it, it, at that point in time, late fourteenth, early fifteenth century, um, there there are sort of two ways that um, uh, that Italians, uh, Christian Italians, are, are thinking about the future, uh, and and they're thinking about it in terms of providence, in terms of so this this I this um. Which which aligns with with, with the, the teaching of the church, which is that we know what the future is, and and so we we know where we're where we're all going. That's what that's what the future holds. Um, but then, of course, there's always the the, the problem of, of of sort of contingency because you know they, you know these aren't people in the past aren't stupid or foolish, and and they know that you know sort sort of seemingly random things happen. So as well as proponents, then um, Italian Christian Italians think about uh, the future in terms of uh, fortuna, um, which of course they they are they're borrowing the, the, the sort of the figure of fortuna um, from the ancient violence of the the the, uh, the, the Roman deity uh, of of uh, fortuna. Uh, so I mean, if you have on the one hand, you have this. Um, this providential vision of the future of okay, we we know what the end of time is. We know where we're going. We are moving towards that. We know what the future is. Um, but then there's also the, this this figure of uh, Fortuna who, who captures then the sort of the, the instability and the uncertainty of, of everyday life. Uh, and until uh really the, the you know moving through the, the late fourteenth into the fifteenth century throughout that period um the way that the figure of fortuna is is used and imagine this is uh as a moral force and and sorry fortuna is there to remind humanity um that what matters is actually the providential vision of the future okay that, that what the, if you're going to think about the future you should be concerned about um you know your, you know, what's going to happen to you after you die, and you should be concerned about eternity. Um, and this is why, then, in this sort of that in the, the medieval, uh, early uh, Renaissance period, the strongest association with fortune is, is is the wheel of fortune. We've had this this image of, you know, of of this this regal woman turning a wheel, uh, which is, a, you know, that that whole image of the wheel of fortune is about the fact that. That all worldly goods, all your status, all your power, all your wealth, um, will inevitably be lost. Okay, because the wheel is going to turn. You're going to you're going to fall down to the bottom and be crushed. Um, and so you should not worry about about those things. You should you should worry about you know eternity. You should, you should worry about the the future. 
Uh, and then this this goes back, um, you know, centuries to to Boethius, and sort of, I think I would suggest is one of the first um, to people to sort of put this Christian moral force over over the figure of Fortuna. So so when when Petrarch, for example, uh, writes about Fortuna in the late fourteenth century, this this is what he's thinking about. He's thinking about this moral force. Um, that is meant to guide humanity back to the right way of thinking, which is don't worry about, you know, tomorrow, don't worry about, you know, whether you're going to make money, just worry about what's going to happen to your soul. That's that's the future that you need to be concerned about. Um, but so so I um, so I argue uh, that, that around the middle of the 15th century, and this is, you know, this is really, you know, this sort of stuff is really nebulous. How do you... But that, that see, I, I liked that, where there wasn't these... Yeah, I mean, it really, it's, it, that's what made it so good, I thought, that it, that it, it didn't kind of put these hard dates, you know, it, it, it really embraced the idea that there is no kind of firm boundaries, that people are very flexible, and that they can keep all these ideas in their heads simultaneously all the time. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah. So, around the middle of the 15th century, these these ideas are that the meaning of fortuna and on the way that fortuna is imagined uh, starts to starts to shift and starts to change. So, so that means the way that um, Christian Italians are thinking about the future is is starting to shift and and starting to change. Uh, and as I, I argue, I suggest in the book that this 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 these shifts are at least first. Uh, noticeable and traceable in in working uh, financial thinking. One of, one of the first examples seems to be um, the the triumphal entry of um, of Alfonso of, of Aragon in, into Naples after he, after he conquers the, the kingdom of Naples in, in the mid fifteenth century, and, and and all the merchant communities of the city, you know, sort of participate in this triumph and. One of the earliest examples of this new way of thinking about fortuna seems to be in the, the Florentine merchant community. Quote, you know, has this this new image and this this new poem, um, and so and and so the, the you know the, the image and that the figure of fortuna um, starts to uh, starts to refer to the you know the unknowability of the future. It always had sort of referred to the sort of uncertainty of the future. But now it starts to refer to it more in a speculative or, or potentially profitable sense, and that the and we, then you start to see the way that merchants start to to talk about fortuna, uh, that that the moral lesson of fortuna starts to change, and and it's no longer about ignore the worldly stuff because it's no good for you. Just worry about you know what's going to happen in eternity. Um, it starts, the moral lesson starts to be not missing out on opportunities. It starts to be, you need to recognize opportunities when they're there and, and you need to seize a hold of them and, and make money make money while you can. So it's this really sort of speculative sense. And, and so Fortuna um, in, the, in the imagery um, ceases to be, by and large, in, in the wheel of fortune never, never entirely disappears, but Fortuna uh, ceases to be this this imperious woman presiding over a wheel, uh, and then instead becomes this this young, naked, alluring uh, woman who's who's um, moving very fast and and is unpredictable. She's general sort of on a on a sphere, or sometimes a little bit wheel, and that's like unpredictability. We don't know which direction she's going to she's going to go 
uh, often made with this this long forelock of hair that it sort of extends in front of her. Um, and so, uh, you know, she's uh, there's a whole lot of sort of gendered aspects to himself. Yes, yeah, you and you, and you, you explore that. Yeah, um, yeah, you explore that. Yeah, and uh, that it, this idea that you know you need to grab a hold of her and seize her um, if you're fast enough and if you're smart enough. That's what you can do. But, but you've got to see her coming because the, the lock of hair is in front. So you've got to grab it by the hair um, as as she's coming towards you. If, if, if she passes you by or changes direction, you'll miss out. So that, that, that's what the, the, moral, the moral lesson um, becomes. You know, grab the opportunity when it's there for you. So, um, so sort of the, 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 you know, these, these two... What had had once been uh, that is these two ideas of the future uh, for Fortuna and Providence that had once sort of worked in concert, you know, Fortuna just reminded you that you should be thinking about the you know the providential vision of the future. They they start to separate, and and so the future it's in in one way of thinking about it that the future is becoming detached from ideas about eternity, that that Christian understanding of we know what the future is. Um, and and instead is becomes a sort of a, a window which is is open for for humanity to to seize chances and to make good uh, on uh, opportunities. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and like you know, it's people have always you know people have always thought about the future, um, but but prior to the the 16th century, European Christians and then Christian Italians always thought about it um, largely as something that was known. I mean, if it was um, in, in, in an obscure in an obscure form, and and so even if they're they're making wills or they're they're you know they're making donations uh, or they're they're drawing up contracts, that's if that's also that's based on an idea that uh, we know what the future is, that the rules and and everything is going to be the same tomorrow. Uh, as it is today, but then the idea that starts to change is that well, actually, maybe the rules can completely change. Maybe you don't know uh, what tomorrow is is going to be, um, and that's that's scary, but it's also exciting. And you know, if you're you know, and the whole notion then around Portuguese becomes if you're smart enough and fast enough, and um, you can you can profit from that. And you know, and sort of the, the upheavals of the late fifteenth century, the um, the the European encounter with the Americas, the the, you know, the beginning of the age of encounters, and uh, the the French invasion of the Italian peninsula, and so that the, the, then the sort of subsequent collapse of the the city states system and all the chaos unleashed there, um, fuels this sense of uncertainty and chaos, and I think really. Um, Helped crystallise new ideas about the future. It's not, you know, it didn't make Italians start thinking about the future differently. They, they'd already begun to do that, but it really sort of um, drove that transformation, helped uh, crystallise crystallise it. And this is where someone like, you know, someone really well known like Machiavelli. I was going to say this. This is your you you do talk about. I feel like we have to talk about Machiavelli. We we're, you know, we're we're. Getting close to the end of time here, we have to talk about Machiavelli and Guicciardini, right? I mean, you, you, you have the he's uh, the two of them are the the last two thinkers that you go through, right? And you see how fully formed this new idea of the future is unknown, and not only the future is unknown, but that the future is an is an opportunity, and that you have to be ready for that, and you have to anticipate it, right? 
Um, so yeah, t- talk about uh, Machiavelli and Guicciardini uh, for a bit. That was I tied up the uh, chapter eight, I think, it tied up the book really nicely. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is where yeah, I mean, and and, and maybe many of the, the listeners are, are familiar with with Machiavelli at least in, in various senses, and I think this is this is where Machiavelli fits in, and that it, there's there's a current through all of his um political and historical writing which he you know he's trying to make sense of a world in which the old rules don't seem to work anymore and and so this idea of well change can happen tomorrow might be completely different today and and that's that's why we need to be adaptable and and flexible and we need to you know know, that's why you know put tuner is is part of the political equation for Machiavelli, but, but you also need to be prepared, and we need to we need to understand that um, that things might change suddenly. And that, and I think in terms of the two of them, um, Machiavelli's a little more a little more optimistic by and large. He sort of seems to think that while uh, while human beings will often get it wrong, there is that they, they they certainly can potentially seize the opportunity of of this sort of of uncertainty and 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 you know seize the day and make a difference uh, in the future. Whereas Wichartini to 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 me, I think seems far more negative. It seems yeah, far more yeah, yeah. In a way, I, I, I just kind of I, messing up every time. <laughs> the opportunity, they're you know. It doesn't matter that that, that, that the opportunity is there to be seen false uh, yes. or, or just just mess it up. Which is that someone will screw it up. If that that someone will always mess it up, right? That these kind of you know whoever it's Piero Piero di Lorenzo or so, someone will screw this up, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So and yeah, that's you know. So you get this notion that by the by the early 16th century, yeah, you get you get thinkers like Machiavelli and Guicciardini. Um, um, but 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 others as as well who 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 are starting to you know they're they're operating in a world now in which this new notion of future has has crystallised and and they're they're starting to to integrate it into how they think and write about history and politics or also you know sort of the, the type of literary works that they're writing as well. Yeah. Uh... I, I, it, like I said, it's it, both of ending on them was was a really nice way of doing it, and you really get a sense that this is only that your book is just the the tip of the iceberg. That there's so much more work out there to be done on this topic. That the, you, I mean, you, you even acknowledge it. You say, "Yeah, I'm just going to be curse." You, you in a, a book that's well over 200 pages long, you say, "I'm I'm being cursory here, right?" <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, you get a sense that there's so much more. Um, so, you know, if someone was, let's say, starting out in graduate school and they were interested in these kind of questions that you tackle here about probability, the future, risk in the Renaissance, uh, is there any any sources that you can think of that you kind of came across and you said, listen, I just had to table it. I didn't have time. Or, um, And I should say, I'm, I'm going to be honest here that this is partly self-serving. I have an undergraduate student and I gave him your, he's a finance major and I gave him your book. And he's writing. Uh, he's now writing his final paper uh, on the question of probability, kind of looking forward in time. And he's found some sources, but I'm always. It's always good to give him more if I can give him more. Uh, so this is partly selfish that I'm, I'm trying to to see what else there is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, as you, I think you said uh, right near the beginning, my something along the lines. Of, it, it is there is a sense that just about you know. 
everybody. You could you could pick up by the 16th century. You can you can pick up just about any Italian author, and Fortuna will crop up somewhere. And so yeah, like I I had to be cursory, otherwise it's be a big number of um and and really selective. Um, so I mean there's work there. But I think there's I think there's probably a lot more work um, that can be done uh, on mercantile correspondence, um, particularly. Uh, I mean, again, I had to be selective and, and sort of target and choose choose case studies. I, I think there's, there's certainly space for um, much more comprehensive studies of, of uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, mercantile correspondence out there. I mean. Um, Jürgen uh, uh, is at, at uh, the University of Antwerp has a has a large project on this at the moment. That that that, that there's there's certainly uh, work to be done in that space. And I mean, there's there I yeah, and I, I think there's more work to be done on yeah. If well, to, to think about your students, you know, on um, changes in uh, thinking about probability. I think there's there's still kind of a uh, there's some wonderful work on that, but I think there's still kind of a, a gap between the the 16th and the, the, the early 18th century where you know, it, it gets left over fairly quickly in, in the great work that does that does exist already uh, on this. So there's, there's probably something there. I mean, in terms of stuff that I table, like the coolest thing that I, that I, th- I, I didn't actually find it, Richard Goldthwaite, Oh yeah. Oh sure, sure, sure. Um, uh, is uh, and that uh, that didn't make it into the book was a was a book which is actually the the account book for bets on one particular particular papal election compiled by by a merchant and that, yeah. that didn't the book. But but I've written an article about that. But you know, that will be coming out in a in my. Probably not next year. Maybe maybe the year after in, yeah, in a year or two, you know, as publication <laughs> timelines go. So yeah, there, there, there's certainly more work to be done in several areas. I mean that that transitions perfectly to the last thing I wanted to ask you. That now you know now that uh, the book's done, it sounds like you do have a, a few things still spinning off from it. Uh, but what's the what's the next project? What's what are you know people should be excited about next from you? Um, yeah, so I do actually, unlike, you know, when I, when I finished my, you know, the story of sort of the evolution of this, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Why I, I mean, Nick, the, there may be is a financial crisis coming up. So you, you know, there's more inspiration here for you if you need it. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm actually moving, moving away from, from financial crises in some ways. And, uh, so I have the, the, the project I'm working on now, um, is, is a micro historical, um, Project, uh, so so very sort of different thing. Looking at a um, at uh, a single Florentine family in the, the first half of of the 16th century, um, who are uh, who they you know that several members of the family are um, you know uh, merchants who are active uh, in southern Spain, and so they have access into the, the very early Atlantic world and and the Americas, and that they're also still trading in that. Uh, in the Mediterranean as well, and so the project's really about and but they're sorry as well as being merchants, they're also art collectors. Um, and a couple of them are friends with uh, Vasari and and so intellectual circles there. So the project's about sort of the ways that um, 
commercial wealth and the sort of emerging global economy and colonial expansion. Uh, and then the, the sort of the creation of the idea of the Renaissance, in, you know, the, the Saharian sort of intellectuals at the Florentine court in the mid 16th century do it. The way that all these things sort of collide and interact uh, in around the middle of the, the 16th century, and looking looking at that through through the experience through the lens of this this single um, mercantile family in, in France. So so that's what's that's what's um, got me got me excited and got me working um, at the moment now. Right, that's great. I mean, I'm excited to read to read more about it. It sounds it sounds fabulous. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, you know, just, just to sort of conclude here, thanks so much. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Nick Baker, who's a associate professor of early modern European and Mediterranean history at Macquarie University. And we've been talking about his book, In Fortune's Theater, Financial Risk and, uh, and the Future in Renaissance Italy, which is out now. It's a great book. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, for joining us. Yeah, you can thank you, Marty. It's it's been a pleasure. It's been great to great to talk with you. Uh, it's been great. Uh, you've been listening to the New Books Network in Early Modern History, a channel on the new uh, on the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Mike Martoccio. Thank you so much for listening.